People come, people go. People go. In these endurance sports, you never, never know. So much overtraining and attrition. Some are bad. You know we got what no one's ever had. And the time has come for people to train properly and have nice, long, enjoyable careers. Hi there, endurance listeners. Exciting announcements. Behold. First one is uh, we are going to be moving the endurance shows over to the Primal Blueprint podcast channel. So please subscribe to the blue logo called the Primal Blueprint podcast wherever you consume podcasts. Aggregating the content there, but the shows will be labeled Endurance. I do another show there uh, that's labeled Keto, so it's all about the ketogenic diet. And then you have wonderful long form interviews with assorted health leaders from our wonderful host, L. Russ. And you also get the narration of all the Mark's Daily Apple posts, the relevant ones that are deserving of narration. So you can consume all kinds of content over there. And if you just want to pick and choose the endurance shows, it's very easy to navigate through those and uh, keep the dream going with the Primal Endurance dedicated content that we've been doing here for uh, a few years now. What are we on? Show 160 or something like that. It's been real. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for considering the Primal Endurance Mastery course. That is where you can really get the absolute maximum experience and guidance to do your endurance sports in a healthy, balanced manner, in a way that promotes happiness, peak performance, longevity, and does not compromise those goals, which happen so frequently with fitness enthusiasts, not just in the endurance scene, but in CrossFit and in competitive sports, where we have that unregulated competitive intensity, uh, the type AAA approach, where you think that the most straightforward path to success is to push the pedal down to the metal and just floor it and put in as much work as you possibly can, squeeze workouts in and around your already busy lifestyle, failing to respect the importance of recovery. And then the profound insight that I first heard from Joel Jameson and hear many people people echoing it in one way, shape, or form, that recovery itself requires energy. Okay? So if you train, 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 and do a double on the weekend, and then dedicate uh, Sunday to sitting on the couch watching people bash into each other in NFL games, uh, gladiators for our personal entertainment, there's blood on all of our hands if you're a football fan, and I will cop to watching football, but I have a very heavy heart these days uh, watching these poor athletes when we know uh, with great certainty, uh, the level of risk and brain damage they're sustaining, not to mention damage to the rest of their body, lifelong uh, considerations when you're playing uh, the supposedly fun, youthful sport of football. So watch at your own peril and uh, check on your conscience there when you're watching these guys bash into each other. Oh, how about that for an aside? Anyway, when you're sitting there on Sunday and vegging out all day, eating chips and guacamole and watching entertainment, thinking that that 
doesn't count toward your energy distribution toward training, we have to open our eyes to the broader concept here that when you're recovering, when you're restocking depleted muscle glycogen, when you're replenishing the depleted sodium potassium pumps that help your brain neurons fire so you can think and walk and use your muscles, these mechanisms, these recovery mechanisms require energy. So if you're envisioning a, a, a pie, a pie chart, of the allocation of your energy over the course of a, a day or a week. Uh, and you're going to put a little slice there for uh, your, your commute because that requires energy, psychic energy, mental energy, the stress of uh, fighting the crowd on the subway. All these things add up. Your long, stressful work day at your important job, uh, coaching and running the kids around to soccer practice or piano lessons, uh, dealing with interpersonal relationships and responsibilities and even conflict and uh, the challenges of uh, daily life. All these things drain your energy just like the wonderful five-mile trail run that helped you escape from all the other sources of stress in your life. But they all go on the same side of the scales of justice balance scale. They're all forms of stress. Even sitting around recovering of course, that's a way to uh, replenish and recalibrate from other stresses, but it takes energy. Now, if we don't respect this concept, so we have our pie chart and we fill the entire pie chart up with work, kids' responsibilities, uh, hobbies, chores, uh, and athletic training, and all of a sudden the pie chart's full, guess what gets compromised? The energy that we have to devote to recovery. Therefore, it's called recovery deficit, Joel Jameson's term, and therefore, all the training, the intended effect of training is to get better, right? I think so. Hold on, let me reference my exercise physiology text. Oh yes, the effect of training, the desired uh, effect is to get better, to improve your fitness. So if you compromise recovery, if you don't have enough energy to devote to recovery, you are going to compromise the benefits of your exercise. Err on the side of more rest and more recovery and less chronic training patterns. That said, living a active, varied, varied forms of activity in daily life is critically important to your overall development as an athlete, even in a narrowly focused goal, such as an ultramarathon run or a long-distance triathlon or paddling from one Hawaiian island to the other. So we want to pursue this concept of total fitness. I had a great podcast with Logan Schwartz recently, airing either before or after this, but in any case, uh, Katie Bowman was referenced by him and many other people. Kelly Starrett, I did an entire show with him where, you know Kelly Starrett, mobilitywad.com, the CrossFit San Francisco legend, uh, author of the fabulous book, uh, Becoming a Supple Leopard, the other book, Ready to Run, the other book, Deskbound. Man, the guy's just cranking out. I don't know how he does it, but we spent an entire hour and 20-minute podcast not on his core areas of expertise, but on the concept of setting up your daily environment for success. In other words, having your phone charger outside of your bedroom so that if you do have the compulsion to check your phone during the sleep hours, during the R&R hours, you have to get up and go outside, open the door, go to the hallway plug, and go check your phone. 
and simple activity, but makes a big difference. He references the idea that he walks his daughters to school. It's a mile, big deal. Hey, we're running late today, better drive. Nope, they walk anyway, and thereby get that daily dose of walking, which is so easily compromised when we're running late or we have justifications and rationalizations. And it was a fascinating conversation. That's going to air on my fabulous new podcast channel called Get Over Yourself. So search for the Primal Blueprint podcast, subscribe to that to get the new Primal Endurance shows, and please go check out the Get Over Yourself podcast. It's super fun and awesome, and it's just covering broader content than the narrow focus on endurance training. Things like health, fitness, peak performance, personal growth, happiness, longevity, healthy relationships, leading a healthy life, disengaging from technology addiction, all kinds of fun stuff with super interesting and diverse guests that will all also have a critical impact on your success as an endurance athlete, right? We have to broaden our picture, broaden our perspective. And I guess, folks, what you would call this would be an opening monologue, huh? Enough already. Let's get to the questions. Here's one from Paul. I'll make it short, he says. And I guess when we're talking about emailing the Primal Endurance podcast, three healthy paragraphs is indeed short, even though it could be considered long uh, by some other standards. (laughs) But I love the start. Brad, I'll make it short. Hey, this is fascinating, interesting stuff. So I encourage you to write thoughtful emails that provide, provide necessary context and background, especially envisioning the broad listenership, not just writing to Brad about which speed golf course is his favorite in St. Louis, Missouri, uh, because that's something that you can, uh, we can deal with offline, right? <laughs> okay, so Paul, six years ago, was weighing in at 312. He's 6'5". So... Uh, so what? It's still 312, man. Got to drop some of that even off a 6.5 frame, right? He had rheumatoid arthritis. He needed some life change. He was on medication. Then he cleaned up his diet, began running, swimming, cycling, hiking. Last year, ran his first marathon in Chicago. A 3.55 at 300 pounds. People, do you understand how freaking incredible that is? 3.55, almost under uh, under four hours. So that's in the top 20% of uh, finishers in most major marathons. I'm referencing the statistic from Los Angeles Marathon. I think they're all very similar in terms of uh, how, how fast the pack is going. Running a three-hour marathon is now in the top, something like top 2% of all finishers. Anyway, that is impressive to run 3.55 at three pills. Uh, and all the running was under maximum aerobic heart rate. And over time, all in all, he's lost 140 pounds. Diet, been following Primal Paleo for six years. Now he's doing keto and a lot of fasting. His ultimate goal of coming off the arthritis meds was realized finally and looking at keto to keep the inflammatory markers under control long term. Uh, My only issue is when I'm strict keto, my weight gets down into the 160s. Wow, so he was at 312, now he's in the 160s. He's half the man he used to be. Uh, And my body fat percentage is 12.5 to 13. Is my weight too low for someone who's 6'5"? Should I go about adding some lean muscle mass while staying within the keto framework? And should I weigh, let's say, uh, should I be concerned about my body fat percentages? Uh, I would say no. I mean, 
your body's going to do what it does. You have a lot of genetic uh, signaling factors at play here, familial genetics, whereby you're going to uh, recalibrate to a weight that is representative of your lifestyle habits and fitness goals, right? So you're training for a marathon. Uh, the best way to adapt and perform well in a marathon is to not carry around a lot of extra weight. Look at the people in the front of the pack if you don't believe me. How about Kip Choga, the greatest marathoner of all time, with two recent performances that are absolutely mind-blowing when he ran the two hours and 30 seconds for the Nike uh, theatrical uh, attempt to break two hours in a controlled setting, and then when he ran in an actual competitive event, a 201.37 Berlin Marathon, smashing the existing world record that was up at 203. This guy, I believe, is 5'6", 120, something like that, a featherweight. And so if you're getting your uh, body fat down to 12.5%, as you train for marathons, no concern whatsoever on that. Your body's going to do what it's going to do. Now, these people concerned with excess body fat, that is simply representative of your current dietary lifestyle habits, stress levels, uh, hormone balance, especially hormone balance. And we always try to uh, point toward uh, the caloric issue. I need to start eating less food, quit snacking so much, and do more exercise. And those can be relevant and uh, scientifically, literally true. But when we're carrying excess body fat, it's largely a question of hormonal dysfunction, uh, thereby most likely uh, hyperinsulinemia, right? Producing too much insulin because you're consuming too many carbohydrates. And when you produce a lot of insulin as a habit, as a pattern, that's what the condition hyperinsulinemia is, chronically excessive insulin production, chronically high levels of insulin in the bloodstream. What happens is you inhibit your ability to access and burn stored energy. And basically, for human health and longevity and also peak performance and endurance sports, we want to be in fat-burning mode almost all the time, except when we're doing uh, a sprint workout or something. And then we're burning uh, pure ATP or we're burning glucose for efforts that go from uh, two minutes on up, right? So mainly when we're sitting around uh, doing basic activities, walking, low-level movement, of course, sitting around, we want to be in that fat-burning mode. How's that for an answer? Yeah, good job losing all that weight, man. Incredible. So here comes Rose. I'm a new follower to the Primal Blueprint. I fell in love with your book and the Primal Endurance book as well. And you personally, Brad. Just kidding. That was a joke. But thank you so much for those comments, Rose. She's 51 years old who has a lifetime of fitness behind me. I was a young sprinter turned mileage queen in my early adulthood and then a natural bodybuilder. You know what that is, listeners? That means uh, competing in the division where they are not taking steroids as opposed to, I don't know what you call the other division. I know they don't call it the drug bodybuilding division, but it's kind of funny where they have to have a division labeled natural to uh, distinguish from the mainstream division. <laughs> Anyway, oh, so she's natural bodybuilding from her 30s until now. I continued running all my life. I've run 5Ks, 10Ks, half marathons, one marathon. I'm goal-oriented and enjoy the process of setting and completing goals. I'm currently two weeks out from my, my final national bikini competition of the year. Good luck. That's how I stumbled across your work. I decided to try keto, and I loved it. Um, 
So I got very lean with the keto macros. My results have been remarkable. I feel amazing, have maintained strength, and most importantly, achieved a very lean physique without feeling like crap. You know, Rose, that's a really nice um, add-on message there because the bodybuilding scene especially, and I was uh, immersed in that when I worked at the nutrition company that sold powders and supplements mainly to the bodybuilding world, but also trying to get them out to endurance athletes because they had uh, similar needs to recover quickly from very strenuous exercise. And people were generally so unhealthy and oftentimes felt terrible uh, all in the name of getting that ultra lean physique for the snapping cameras once in a while when it was time to get into competition mode. But the stress and the starvation and the emotional stress of preparing for these competitions where people had to starve themselves and then in the final days dehydrate themselves severely, that's how you get the veins popping. Uh, you see a, a top, top bodybuilder on the street and they look pretty ripped, man. You can see veins on their body, but not to the crazy extent that you see when you Google an image or uh, uh, look through a magazine. That's an extreme case where they can sustain that only for a very short time, oftentimes at great risk to their health. Uh, there was a story of a bodybuilder who collapsed and died on stage. I think it's happened more than once just from the uh, dehydration and the electrolyte imbalance of starving uh, not drinking water, and then still pumping the uh, pumping the weight all the way up to competition day. So Rose says she's rocking and rolling at 51 uh, without feeling like crap. Uh, I love the endurance side of things. I've been most affected there by your writings, and I've never built a proper aerobic base. So she's learned to tone it down and uh, stay in that aerobic zone, burn fat. I've been so many years in the black hole. So anyway, with that nice tee up, here come some questions. I want to be a better endurance athlete. I want to run half marathons, maybe another full. I even have the dream to one day complete a half Ironman triathlon. I'm not in a big hurry. I want longevity and long-term health as well as long-term aesthetics. With that in mind, I don't want to lose any of my hard-earned muscle mass. What would be the best way for me to learn and pursue these goals? Do you offer coaching? <laughs> will, you endur will the endurance courts help me guide with this? Uh, so this is a cool question because you're entering uh, the endurance goals uh, having done other forms of training that aren't directly associated with endurance success. But you know what? If I saw a bodybuilder coming into the endurance scene, I would have high hopes for you. I think you're going to have a great chance at succeeding and feeling strong when you're uh, extending out to these new goal distances of doing the full marathon or doing half Ironman triathlon because you've built so much muscular fitness and flexibility and power in the gym with the, the bodybuilding type workout regimen. And these things are all a fabulous uh, baseline entry point to pursue endurance goals. And so really, uh, instead of the many, many other people on the other side of the coin who are endurance machines and have had the heart and lungs uh, pumping for years and years and years, but are stooped over and hunched over and can't even lift a sandbag to um, save their garden from uh, the rainstorm flooding, uh, those are the type of people that have to broaden their perspective and get into the gym maybe for the first time and start doing some box jumps and some resistance cords and all the things that are routine for a, a strength athlete. So in your case, uh, 
Would you lose a little bit of hard-earned muscle mass? Maybe if you were carrying extra muscle mass that's not very functional, but I don't think that's a huge concern. Whether you do or don't, it's not going to be an extreme loss in muscle mass, nor is it going to be a huge performance limiter that you're carrying a little bit of extra lady muscle because of all your bodybuilding times. You're probably going to look better than uh, the vast majority of the participants who might be carrying a little extra body fat. So how's that for an answer? And then how do you pursue these goals? You go out there and conduct uh, what Sisson and I like to call breakthrough workouts where you Uh, Do something that's difficult and challenging enough to stimulate a fitness improvement that is directly associated with your race goal. So you're going to go out there once in a while, could even be once or twice a month, as little as that, but going out there and doing an extra long run to try to put in uh, the, the time on your feet that's going to prepare you for what you're going to face on competitive day. Wow, good luck. Thanks for the nice comments. Brad. I try to get an answer to your question. I can't find it anywhere. It hasn't been broadcasted on the podcast. I humbly ask you if you can help me out. I run and mountain bike at 95% of math. I think that's what it means, right? So you're almost up there at maximum aerobic heart rate, and that can be a little confusing, especially to a new listener. So let me back up and say that maximum aerobic heart rate is the point where maximum aerobic benefits occur with the minimum amount of anaerobic stimulation. It's the point of maximum fat oxidation. So you're burning more fat calories per minute at this relatively comfortable training pace. We like to... uh, recommend Dr. Phil Maffetone's 180 minus age formula in beats per minute to represent your maximum aerobic heart rate, okay? So that's the starting point. So your 95% of maximum aerobic heart rate, that's a very comfortable pace and has nothing to do with 95% of max heart rate. So we always use these percentages. Usually we use these percentages in uh, association with talking about maximum heart rate and a lot of times have calculated uh, an aerobic zone based on percentage of maximum. But we prefer Phil Maffetone's formula where you just simply subtract your age and then you get a beats per minute. So if it's 180 minus uh, my age is around 50, (laughs) just for argument's sake to make the math a little easier, I'm 53, but let's say I'm 50. 180 minus 50 is 130 is my maximum aerobic heart rate. How about that? Okay, continuing on with the question. Okay, so sometimes I like to do tempo runs as my speed work of choice. Could you tell me how to estimate my lactate threshold from my maximum aerobic heart rate calculation? So maximum aerobic heart rate, easy to calculate, 180 minus your age. What about your lactate threshold? That's the point where uh, lactic acid is accumulating faster than it can be removed from the bloodstream. So it's kind of an uh, uh, inflection point on a graph that the athletes have long used for decades to identify that red line pace that one can theoretically hold for up to an hour. That's what the uh, physiology exercise physiology uh, proponents uh, calculate that your lactate threshold threshold is something you can hold as an all-out effort for an hour. So if you're doing an hour time trial to try to break the world record, uh, 
prominent world record in the cycling scene is called the hour record where you go into a velodrome and pedal that bike and the world record is now up to 35 miles in one hour pretty impressive for a human to be able to pedal that fast for an hour all out anyway so that's what the lactate threshold is and um, I think this is from Bob I'm 46 and by feel when running I think I'm around 157 to 160 so that means that he's uh, what is that? 180 minus age. So he's 134 as a 46-year-old. And so he's saying that uh, it's 23 beats to 30 beats above his maximum aerobic heart rate is his lactate threshold heart rate. And that's probably a pretty good guess. Uh, another way to uh, zero in on this is to do an hour time trial in your favorite sport and see where your heart rate levels off at. If assuming that you pace yourself well and you're not at the side of the road at 45 minutes, then you know whatever heart rate you were holding is higher than your lactate threshold, huh? But my uh, most important final answer here is that it doesn't matter that much. And Dave Scott told me, uh, you know him, the uh, six-time Ironman champion, prominent coach in the triathlon scene for decades. Uh, he said that you get a similar training benefit, uh, training anywhere from 10% below lactate threshold to 2% above. And so that was his recommendation to back it off a little bit when you're going out there doing an interval workout or a tempo run. Save the real pain and suffering for the race day. Don't overstress yourself in training. But yes, if you're trying to do a lactate threshold workout to prepare yourself for a time trial or an all-out race lasting around an hour, you can creep up there into those higher heart rate zones and put the workout down at those appropriate times of the year when you're throwing in intensity and have a good session with a lot of recovery afterward. How's that? Ty, next question. I'm taking a powder vitamin and mineral blend drink. I was wondering if that interferes with the autophagy process. I usually fast between 7 and 10 a.m., some days longer. Um, so I'm assuming when you say I fast between 7 and 10 a.m., uh, that you're also overnight fasted. <laughs> Otherwise, um, that means you, the way you wrote it means you're eating breakfast at 6.30 and then fasting from 7 to 10 a.m., which is not deserving of congratulations. That uh, should be uh, the least of our expectations is to be able to last for a few hours after eating. Okay, so let's going to say he fasts until 10 in the morning. Um, so autophagy is that natural cellular detoxification process that has been identified to be upregulated, to be optimized when you are in a fasted state. And I've had other questions on this from people uh, almost to a comical extent where uh, in a live discussion someone will raise their hand and go, so if I have my uh, butter coffee in the morning, um, is it still considered fasting? And I'm like, I don't know. Why don't you look up in the dictionary and see what it says under fasting? So the definition of fasting is to not be consuming any calories. Water excluded, obviously, has zero calories, part of the body. You can drink water during a fast. Probably a really good idea if you do a long fast so you don't uh, collapse, right? Uh, but anything else that's going in there that has calories is going to break your fast. So... Thai, your vitamin and mineral blend drink. Is that zero calories or is it vitamins and minerals blended with other stuff? So that's one question. That would have uh, less impact on autophagy than something with calories. Now, here's an interesting uh, 
additional insight or uh, thought to consider here, and that's the work of Dr. Sachin Panda on the digestive circadian rhythm. He and Rhonda Patrick get into it nicely on Rhonda's YouTube video, so look for Found My Fitness and find those two guys talking through this interesting research about uh, the digestive circadian rhythm that we operate under, similar to how we operate under a circadian rhythm, uh, the light and dark cycles affecting various hormonal processes and cognitive function and all that stuff. So the digestive circadian rhythm concept is that um, ideally we will uh, have our digestive system operate in a maximum window of 12 hours every day and then switched off for 12 hours. When the digestive system is switched off at nighttime overnight, uh, you are better able to have the rest and restoration and cellular repair processes that happen at night. So try to shoot for that maximum 12-hour window. If you're a fasting enthusiast and you're into the keto thing and you're eating only between 12 p.m. and 6 p.m. or 12 p.m. and 8 p.m., that's great. you got an 18-hour fasting window or 16-hour fasting window. But for all of us, we should strive to limit our digestive system function to a 12-hour block. And guess what? In this definition, this case, any xenobiotic substance that you ingest turns on your digestive system. It, it counts. And so that's not necessarily caloric. So when you wake up at 6 a.m. and have some herbal tea, or when you swallow a vitamin pill at 10 p.m., uh, this is your digestive system still having to process uh, an outside agent and work through it and break it down, even if it's coffee without calories or tea or vitamins. So this was an eye-opener for me when I was first exposed to this work because even though I was uh, doing a lot of fasting and starting my uh, maybe waiting till 12 noon to have a proper meal, uh, in those morning hours I would certainly have... Uh, uh, an herbal tea or something going down that wasn't um, necessarily a high-calorie meal. And then I would uh, find myself having a bite or two or square or three or four of dark chocolate, uh, you know, at 9.30, 10 p.m., heading off to sleep soon after that. But that means if I'm starting at 7 a.m. and there's still stuff going down the pipe at 10 p.m., even though my meals came at 12 noon and 6 p.m., like a good gold star keto uh, earner there, uh, I was disrespecting the importance of the digestive circadian rhythm. Thanks for the question, Ty. Uh, here comes Jeff. Love your show. I've definitely slowed down to improve my aerobic base and put an end to chronic cardio and black hole training. Wow, this stuff's really catching on. It's so fantastic to uh, read about the success stories and people uh, recommending uh, spreading the word. You know, we've been fighting this battle for so long, dating back years and years. And I was one of those people that was trying so hard to succeed on the professional triathlon circuit and willing to do whatever it took to rise up the rankings and pass people and win the race and get the glory and all the attention. And so, you know, heading out the door and training every day was no problem. The challenge was the discipline was required to rest and back off and allow the 
training adaptation to happen naturally without forcing things to happen that weren't naturally meant to be. That's when I had to elevate to a higher level of sophistication with my training and depart from the regimented training schedule that everyone seems to think is so important and paying good money for a coach to spit something out over email or software uh, tool now to see what you're supposed to do every day. It simply doesn't work as effectively as honoring your intuition and going in rhythms and respecting all the other stress factors in your life. Okay, back to Jeff. So definitely tightened up that black hole nonsense. I take a math test every six weeks and notice that the outside temperature has a lot to do with my mile times at a given heart rate. Am I approving my aerobic base or is it simply easier to run when, when it's less hot? Great point. So Dang, man, that's really uh, not mentioned enough. I wish I could go edit the book and talk about, uh, I, I'm always saying, hey, do the math test on the same venue every time. So go to a running track and run eight laps every time. So you have a fixed uh, a course. And then, of course, you have a fixed heart rate. You try to run eight laps holding your heart rate uh, as close as possible. It's going to bounce around a little as close as possible to maximum aerobic number. So then you have your heart rate, you're paying it at 130 or whatever it is. You run eight laps, you check your time. Are you getting fitter or not getting fitter? But of course, you have to have a similar uh, weather conditions, even for a short test duration, such as 20 minutes or below, which I don't think for most people, you don't need to do a math test that lasts longer than 20 minutes. But even at 20 minutes or less, if you have an extreme temperature disparity between your tests or you live in a really hot climate where it's 95 degrees or higher, that's going to slow you down right away on your second lap if you're running in hot, hot temperatures. Cold, I have no problem with. You can probably do a good math test at 20 below zero. I'm having a great time experimenting with doing my daily chest freezer cold plunge and then jumping out and running to warm up and then feeling fantastic after 30 minutes of warm up running. Like I didn't even make an effort. More on that later. Anyway, great question, and I'll make a practice to start. Um, mentioning the temperature variable that you want to control that too. Oh, I'm not sure that was from Jeff. Sorry, that was from Adam. Right, Adam Tinkman. So now Jeff says, hey man, heard you on the Trail Runner Nation podcast. What a great podcast. If you're an endurance athlete, hop over there and subscribe to Trail Runner Nation. They put out fabulous content. Uh, Don and Scott, you'll love their game and all the super interesting guests they have on. Uh, so I heard you a while ago, and I've been listening and reading your materials since. How about that? I'm glad I appeared on that fabulous podcast and made the incredibly arduous journey over to uh, a nearby Sacramento suburb of Rockland where Dr. Don Freeman practices, and they have their fabulous Trail Runner Nation studio in the back office. Yeah, man. Free chiropractic adjustment for podcast guests, too. How about that? You can't beat that. Anyway, these concepts make a ton of sense to me. I'm dialing back my training, adjusting my diet. Couple questions. As I get used to my new heart rate monitor and use it on hilly terrain around my house, I'm wondering if setting it to math is the correct thing to do. I'm getting better at this, but the alarm still goes off from time to time. When this happens, it takes 15 to 30 seconds to drop back down below math. Do these periods 
uh, over my target negate the aerobic training effect and my efforts to become fat adapted? Uh, unfortunately, bud, the answer is yes. You have to be really strictly disciplined when you're out there doing an aerobic workout to keep that beeper off. Even set the beeper for five beats below your math and take corrective action accordingly. And yes, I've fielded numerous emails and personal pleas to people that say, uh, the hills are so steep around my house, I can't help but exceed maximum aerobic heart rate uh, on certain routes. And to them, I say, go to the bike shop and have them put on a super gnarly granny gear on your bike. In other words, a really big chain ring in the back so that you can pedal very, very slowly up even the steepest of hills. I will reference only one climb uh, on one of my old favorite routes uh, way back in the Sierras. Uh, we did a seven-hour ride uh, often, usually once a week when we were training on the pro triathlon circuit. I'd bring out suckers from the flatlands and say, hey, you got got to come do this ride on Tuesday. And it was called the Death Loop. And uh, it featured prominently midway through the ride a uh, hill climb that I titled the Corkscrew Wall. You can see a picture of it in the book Primal Endurance. It's worth buying the book just for that. Uh, but this thing uh, climbs out of uh, a steep river canyon to the tune of 2,200 feet in three and a half miles, I believe. Uh, so grinding up that thing midway through a 110-mile ride with 13,000 feet of vertical gain, uh, sometimes we heard those heart rates beep. We tried our hardest to power up it without exceeding aerobic maximum, but granted, sometimes you're going to exceed. But when you're running, no way, man, because you should just walk as you drift up near your maximum aerobic heart rate. Uh, what happens even if you exceed maximum aerobic heart rate for a short time? is you're going to kick into glucose burning mode. And once your body starts burning glucose, once some lactate starts to accumulate in the muscles as waste product from exceeding uh, a sensible, comfortable pace, it's difficult to uh, return back to comfortable fat burning mode. For the same reason, it's really, really important to warm up because when your body goes from sedentary into workout mode, it's a difficult transition to do quickly, so you have to ease into a workout even to the extent of walking for the first five or six minutes of your training session or if you're biking, pedaling very, very slowly and just helping the blood to transition away from concentration in the torso, in the internal organs, to the extremities, getting ready to work out. So try hard, people. Make a devoted effort to keep those fat-burning workouts in the fat-burning zone. And remember, you don't have to bump up against your maximum very often to become an effective, competent endurance athlete. As I referenced many times when I was a professional, I would train 20, 30, 40, sometimes 50 beats below my maximum aerobic heart rate of 155 when I was in my 20s decade and in top shape. Getting a great workout adaptation, uh, if that means walking for you, so be it. That means a hike or a brisk walk is an excellent training session for most recreational endurance athletes. Second part of Jeff's question. Six months ago, my wife and I cleaned up our diets. We each shed five pounds. All right, couples therapy. I was not overweight to begin with. Now I'm going paleo. I've dropped another five pounds. I'm near my high school weight, even though I'm 59. What tricks do you have when eating carbs and sugars to get enough calories during a busy day? Keep up the good work. Thanks, Jeff. 
Uh, well, if you are concerned that you're dropping too much weight, uh, congratulations. You can have bigger problems, right? And there's plenty of high-fat items to snack on, calorically dense snacks like macadamia nuts or sardines or slathering peanut butter, almond butter on celery sticks or jicama and keeping yourself fueled and recovered for the ambitious workouts that you perform. And uh, like Dr. Tommy Wood says at Nourish, Balance, Thrive, eat bigger portions of the healthy, nutritious meals when you're an athlete because you need that energy and that nutrition. So if you're having a nice omelet in the morning with three eggs and the veggies and the cheese and the avocado and the salsa, or you're ordering that up at a restaurant, ask them to add two more eggs because you're a lean, mean calorie burning machine. So you have an elevated need for good nutrition when you're training hard and you're maintaining uh, an optimal body weight. How about that? And then finally, Jim, as an older, fat-adapted athlete, 65, training for a spring marathon, would I, would it make sense to use a ketone supplement as fuel during endurance training and during the marathon, perhaps in conjunction with some conventional race carbs like Gatorade or gel? Or is it best to supplement with ketone products only during pre-race? Hey, train with this stuff. Get used to it. It can deliver performance benefit. I've heard people like Ben Greenfield talk about the rocket fuel that is delivering ketones and glucose at the same time for a peak performance benefit on those rare occasions. But certainly, the ketone supplements, I think, have a tremendous potential to help fuel uh, workouts with a cleaner burning fuel source than glucose. That's what I feel is the most prominent or the most compelling benefit of using these supplements. I'm not sure about the logic when people are using them to burn more body fat or to lose weight because you're consuming a source of calories. Uh, because you're consuming exogenous ketones, you're shutting off any internal production of ketones or even fat burning as you burn through the calories in the supplement. But wow, what a fantastic idea to consume powdered ketone supplement before, during, and after especially high-intensity workouts. And that's exactly what I do with my product is I'm uh, drinking that in conjunction with my sprint workouts to be sure that I'm burning the cleanest burning fuel source. Uh, and then he's talking about his practice of using, um, doing 10-mile runs uh, on coffee with assorted fat sources in there. So he's getting fat adapted. He's making progress training for this marathon. And sure, go experiment with the ketone supplements. In the old days, uh, the product was delivered so directly that people would uh, complain widespread of digestive distress when uh, drinking uh, especially a ketone ester, but even the ketone salts in the early days. And now these products are buffered and have a lot of supportive ingredients, including the minerals and electrolytes that you need uh, when you're in keto. So a nice product. I've never had any uh, stomach distress consuming uh, ketone supplements of various brands. So thank you, everyone, for those great questions. I look forward to seeing you virtually speaking inside the hallowed grounds of the Primal Endurance Mastery course. This is such a fabulous and comprehensive course for everything you need to succeed as an endurance athlete. I keep going back and referencing these videos from Dr. Kelly Starrett and these wonderful sound bites that stay with me and my uh, progression toward peak athletic goals where Dr. Kelly said that you need to spend 15 minutes 
of every training hour dedicated to mobility, flexibility, drills, and exercises for endurance athletes. What a wild and novel concept. And so many more cool things, 120 plus videos, all carefully, exquisitely organized by Brian for easy navigation and following through every single concept in the Primal Endurance book. You don't even have to read a book now. You can just watch everything on video and go do it. So primalendurance.fit will tell you more, including giving you a sneak preview of seven videos of what the course is all about. So definitely sign up for that free uh, service. Uh, I think you put your email address in there and then we give you access to the seven videos and enroll in the course today. I'll give you a 20% discount, B-R-A-D-20, Brad20 in the discount field and you are whopping 20% off that price. Consider it, try it out. And I look forward to seeing you online, helping you achieve all your goals. Thank you so much for listening to the Primal Endurance Show. Come on, come on, come on, come on. Say what? It's poison, don't be cruel. It's my prerogative to do what I gotta do. Have a little sensitivity. Do me, baby, I wanna get rubbed the right way, so what you gotta say? Oh no, she's a candy girl living in a half crazy world. That's the way I'm living, girl. So every little step I take is another ending heartbreak. My, my, my.